The 2009 recession also allowed debate on other ideas to come to the fore. That fresh thinking that allowed us all to talk about canes again swept a new wind through the recession-hit boardrooms. We scratched our heads and asked if more women in the boardrooms might have led to less reckless behaviour by the over-expansionary bankers. Professor Dame Sandra Dawson. Essentially, I think individuals have a style. And the question is, are more women one way than another? Because women are certainly not one sort of style. And I think in general, you could say that probably more women than men are more empathetic, have more consideration for understanding other points of view, and I think looking at a rather whole, a bigger picture. But of course there are men who can do that as well and there are some women who can't do it at all. So I don't think women are like this and men are like that. I think it put on the balance of probabilities you might find more women uh, with, a, with a greater humanity towards the way in which they manage. OK, well, let's go into the tough follow-up question first. If there had been more women in the boardroom during this recession... Uh, in the banks, might we have seen some kind of, ah, but, should we really be uh, expanding this fast? Should we really be uh, developing these financial uh, instruments? Might the women, had they been in the boardroom, have tempered some of the, the decision-making? I don't think so. I don't think we've got any evidence to say that. I think the question is, would, could we have more women merchant bankers, more women investment bankers, more women on the board? Um, what can we do about the pipeline? But I don't think we could say what would have happened to this recession. As far as I'm aware, the decisions that were made that have led the banks and other corporations into uh, the state that they're in have been made by boards in which there have been some women, myself included in one of them. But I don't think we can make a gender difference about that. That creative thinking at Judge Business School continued to offer support and vision to troubled management teams around the world. Dr Mark Durand, drawing on his unique research into the team dynamics of the Cambridge Boat Race team, offered advice on how to resolve the tensions that naturally arise in high-performance teams. These observations that I, um, I thought might be relevant to, to, um, to business life and these observations I often talk about with the executives that we teach here. Um, the first one is that what makes these people good can make them difficult too. Okay, so um, as I've already said, these are uh, very high-achieving individuals. They tend to be very strong-willed, have a great uh, level of confidence in their own intuitions. They can be surprisingly oblivious sometimes to the emotional effects they have on people around them. Um, so again, you want them desperately in the boat because they're good, but what makes them good can make them difficult too. Um, they tend to look at their own contributions often through rose-tinted glasses, which is not unusual. Um, um, and there's some interesting research in, uh, in business that sort of corroborates this. And, and um, 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 recently, a, um, a consultant company did a piece of research where they asked 1,800 managers to answer two questions. Number one, how confident are you in your own ability to make good decisions? 83% um, of the managers said they were either very confident uh, or confidence in their ability to make good choices. The second question was very devious. They asked the same people, how confident are you in, in the abilities of those you work with most closely to make good choices? 
and uh, the response was 27%. Now, how can that be true? How can the people that we work with most closely be so much less competent <laughs> than we ourselves are? Um, but, you, you know, it's one of those traits that you find with people that are very high, performer, uh, high performers in their own right. You know? um, and so you can't really have your cake and eat it, too. Um, the consequence of that is that conflict is almost always just around the horizon, and you need to be aware of that. And as a as a coach or as a manager in business, the sort of skills that probably will pay pay their dividends are not necessarily skills in foresight or planning uh, or uh, or controlling, um, as we would traditionally describe management. It's really skills in conflict resolution and mediation. Talk of innovation in business was followed by new interest in innovation in social enterprise. Its pro-social approach offers opportunities to find new ways of delivering existing services and delivering new services. Dr Helen Hall. Well, there are many definitions of social enterprise. Uh, I tend to favour the definition used by the Office of the Third Sector, which defines the social enterprise as an organisation who pursues a social mission and whose surpluses are principally reinvested to uh, pursue that social mission in the business or community. They're organisations that, rather than focusing on making a profit, they want to make a profit and achieve a social mission. And they can often be run by idiosyncratic, gifted individuals, can't they? They're found in all sectors, delivering health care, delivering environmental improvements, uh, collecting our rubbish from the streets. Uh, they're basically very diverse. Yes, it's a very, very diverse sector. And what's been very interesting over the last few years is to, to see and to, to watch how different uh, sectors have embraced the social enterprise model. And you're absolutely right in talking about um, social enterprises in the health sector. There's a particular push within the health sector to encourage more social enterprises because the social enterprise model is really well suited to health because of the the need to ensure that the the human side of enterprise is, is embedded in the business model. And when you talk about the human side of enterprises, we know that third sector organisations are traditionally bottom-up rather than the state, which may be bureaucratic and top-down. So they can, in fact, or seem to be very close to people. That's right, and it's one of their key strengths that they they have this close connection with the communities that they serve. And so they can use that that connection, that that knowledge of their, their clients in designing an appropriate Uh, level and quality of service to meet the needs of individual uh, clients or consumers. Yes, it's very much that close connection with their communities that is part of their business model. In the real economy, it wasn't just the banks that needed bailing out. The car industry was in a slump, and bailout packages and new green initiatives were rolled out. Those judge business school experts came out fighting for its survival. Dr. Matthias Holwig. For the last 10 years, we've seen a major shift from manufacturing towards services under the uh, um, general notion that car industries and metal uh, and manufacturing industries are indeed a sunset sort of type of industry. But actually, if you look back um, uh, through the recent crisis, you could very strongly argue for a balanced economy that needs both manufacturing and services. So I would strongly argue that we still should retain basic value-added manufacturing 
in, in the UK, in fact, in any other country in, in Europe, because relying on services alone is a very dangerous strategy, as the recent crisis has shown. But isn't that rather an old-fashioned argument that you're propounding, almost like the Wilson government uh, and, and sticks and carrots of, of the 60s? Um, how does the motor industry compare with that of the 70s and 80s? Is history repeating itself in any respect? Well, two points here. First of all, uh, the car industry is not a sunset industry. In fact, we've, we've seen a very steady growth in car production globally uh, of, at the very least, 2.5%, depending on how far back you go in time. And the UK is buying 2 million cars every year, and it's making 1.5. So um, it's already net importer. So there's clearly demand for this product, and I just don't understand why the UK shouldn't take part in this this globally growing industry. And we're, we're, we're about to have a, a billion vehicles on the planet emitting a quarter of all greenhouse gases. So this industry has global importance. 90% of personal transportation relies on it. 95% of all goods transported rely on motor vehicles. But you mentioned carbon emissions. Actually, this industry has a desperate need to change and to adapt. So the car industry, as we know it, can't continue as it is. Yes and no. It's a very slowly moving industry. Um, always remember, a quarter of all cars that will be on the roads in 10 years' time have already been built. So the, the lead times for change are very slow. And the big problem we have, the big uh, uh, sort of uh, double whammy, if you wish, is that the industry at the moment is suffering from overcapacity and poor financial results, yet has to invest in these new technologies that are emitting or are more energy-efficient and emit less greenhouse gases. So you're absolutely right, we need to change, but that change will not happen overnight. It's a very slowly moving industry. Motor vehicles are complex. It's not just about carbon, it's also about safety, it's about affordability, given that our economies rely on it. So this change is a drastic one, but it will also be a slow one. At a firm level, marketing budgets were being pruned, if not frozen. But hey, wait a minute, Judge Business School had a thing or two to say about this. Dr Omar Merlo explained how companies that survived previous recessions all continued to invest in their brands during these downturns, eventually emerging stronger. Recent data has shown that uh, since 2008, so in 2009, uh, the, the, the number of companies in the US, in Europe and in Asia that have cut marketing spending uh, is more than half. So more than half of the companies out there are cutting slash in the marketing budgets by, by 10, 20, in some cases 30%. Only a smaller number of these uh, are maintaining their current budgets uh, at the same levels as last year. And a fraction, we're talking single digits, are actually increasing their marketing budgets. Uh, so it makes sense because you... you, you you're held accountable. You're asked, we want to see big cash flow. We want to see sizable cash flow. So you need to cut these things that make us look like we're profitable, of course. And so what's the importance of the brand then? Because in today's um, culture, we just had the G20, you know, with 27 countries, and they were talking about the importance of green issues for business and the environment for business. So perhaps if in a recession you gave your brand different values, would that help? I think the number one, the first challenge in a recession that you really need to face and, and consider very carefully is how is the recession affecting your customers, not you as a company. So you, you, the company revolves around creating something for our customers. So the first thing you've got to ask yourself is how are customers changing? Are they spending more? Are, are they looking for environmental issues? And what, what are the things that they look in your brand? And this could be functional or emotional. Now, if there are emotional elements, then the, the, the brand is all about trust. And in the end, in times of crisis, you look to someone that you can trust. And if you disappear 
during a, a crisis or, 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 or a recession, then you're telling your customers, well, you, know, you, you can't trust me because I, I'm here just for, for the short-term gain. I'm not here to create value in the long term. So to, to, to answer your question, I, I'd say that you really need to monitor carefully what your customers are doing. How is the recession affecting them? How are they affecting your target uh, markets? Then seg- segment perhaps the market according to how they, they, your, 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 your customers are responding and change your strategy perhaps incrementally to respond to, to, respond to these changes. For some consumer companies, there might be no change needed whatsoever. They might still have customers who are happy to pay a premium uh, for your brand, and, and, and they're not going to change behaviour. So innovating might be a good idea. Uh, I'd say innovating is always essential. Yeah, and, 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 and in, some, in some markets you're looking at incremental innovation. In, some, in other markets you're looking at more radical innovation. I think innovation has to be customer, again, market-driven. So it has to, to be driven by a careful and, and sophisticated understanding of how consumer behaviour is changing according to the current environmental conditions. So if your customers are becoming more price-conscious, then yes, you can innovate towards reducing uh, uh, the the cost to the customer of your products and services. Um, in, in the end, I think the key challenge is to focus on what customers truly want. And often they don't want everything. They don't want perfection in your product or service. They just want a number of things that meet their core and, 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 uh, and key needs. So as long as you deliver on those dimensions, you remind your customers why they chose you in the first place and you maintain that bond, then I think you can survive the recession. By the summer of 2009, we started navel-gazing. Shouldn't we have seen the crash coming? And what should we have learnt from past downturns and depressions globally? An analysis of what happened in the crash of the 1930s may prove a good way to predict how long it may take us to get out of the current financial difficulties. Dr David Chambers. Whenever we think about predicting uh, a crisis or a boom or a bust... Um, There are always two dimensions we have to think about. So one is, uh, what's the magnitude of of the crash or the crisis that's coming? But the second is what the timing of that that crisis is. And um, the latter in particular is extremely difficult. Um, One of my areas of research and uh, and personal interest are the investment activities of John Maynard Keynes. So Keynes, for example, uh, was an extremely active investor in the 1920s, and he didn't see, uh, the great man himself didn't see the 1929 crash coming. He was heavily invested in the stock market. So one might say, if Keynes couldn't spot the crisis coming, then what, what, uh, what chance have we? But there is an old adage, isn't there? If we look to history, we can predict the future. Do you think there were parallels with this crisis in the past? Oh, most certainly there, were, there, are, there are parallels. Um, so uh, one of the, the, the common features of this crisis and uh, what happened in the 1930s, which is why everyone tends to reach back to the, the period of the so-called Great Depression of the 1930s, is the severity of the economic downturn. Um, and the reason that this, is, uh, this occurred both then... Uh, and it's occurred today, particularly in 2008, and so far what we've seen in, in 2009, is that in both periods there was a de- this devastating combination of a decline, an unexpected decline in prices, particularly asset prices, so that's both uh, stock market prices and real estate prices, the combination of this unexpected decline in prices and huge amounts of debt. This was a feature 
both of the recent past as a result of the subprime crisis, but also what happened in the late 1920s and the early 1930s. And when that happens, firms uh, and banks and consumers can lose confidence extremely rapidly and they start to worry about what's happening with the, the person or the, the, the entity that they're trading with at the other end of a contract. And as a result of that, you can get massive contraction in credit markets. That's what we saw in the 1930s. That's what we saw in Japan again in the 1990s, and it's what we've seen yet again uh, in, this, in this most recent crisis. In August 2009, Japan came out of recession after its economy grew by 0.9% in the April to June quarter. So what's the trick? Determined not to be upstaged by countries like India, China and Korea in breathing new life into its companies, Japan is instigating global mergers in sectors as diverse as brewing, sheet glass and banking. Dr George Olcott. If you look at a company like Toyota, where the... Um uh, the key to success is really in the manufacturing process. Uh, there are uh, the, the same uh, uh, sort of cultural issues that are there in Emma do not uh, occur because what you have for Toyota is uh, excellence in manufacturing. So what they need to do is uh, replicate the same manufacturing process that has been so successful for them in Japan uh, and take it to uh, the United Kingdom or France uh, or, um, or the United States. And so long as they keep making better cars than General Motors, Ford, Renault and so on, uh, they will continue to be successful. But uh, when you come to M&A uh, in areas such as food, pharmaceuticals, uh, but particularly something like food, if you take the example of Kirin Brewery, um, it's not the same issue for them uh, to take uh, a, a successful uh, manufacturing process in Japan and, and uh, taking it uh, to the UK or to France. Uh, the big investment that's required, for example, in beer is in the brand. Um, and you have two companies, particularly InBev and, uh, and SA Brewery, who over the last 15 years have been very successful uh, in, um, in uh, acquiring brands on a global basis. Kirin Brewery, which in 1990 was the fourth largest beer company in the world, is now down to number 12. Uh, and this is um, uh, through. This is really because of cultural reticence, uh, the, the problems of overcoming culture uh, in acquiring brands. The navel gazing over, glimpses of a recovery on the horizon. What next? Talk then turned to if the recovery would be V-shaped or W-shaped, and if the rise back up will be followed by a dip back down. Michael Kitson said the recession will be deeply protracted and U-shaped, not W-shaped, and he sees hope in the new trade figures too. Talking about a shape often is too simplistic way of looking at a recession, but if we, if we, were, if we were to take that uh, approach, the best picture we have at the moment is a deep U-shaped recession. What we're going to see this year is about a 5% fall in the size of the economy. Next year we'll see the economy staggering along, very little growth, if any, and then in 2011, we should start to see the economy growing again. So if we want to play the, the, the letters game, a deep U-shaped recession is what we've got. 
But wouldn't some people say, well, look, there are some optimistic signs already. The housing market is, is picking up. House prices have even risen by 0.01%, uh, it, it seems. And uh, on national, but at the same time, our national output is still shrinking. And, you know, the worst since records began. So, so, so the signals are a bit mixed at the moment, aren't they? The economy is bumping along the bottom, and there will be a few twists and turns. But overall, we are going to be, see the economy just staggering along rather than recovering significantly. House prices a little bit volatile. We've got a few recent months' figures that suggest they may be turning around. We can't draw much inference from that. There may be some positive benefits over the next few months as firms restock. The first impact of a recession is firms to run down their stocks, the stock of raw materials, goods and services they've got. After they've finished using those stocks they have, they start to restock. But those benefits are only temporary. They're not going to generate a long-term recovery. There was one other overarching theme of 2009, and that was the environment and the impact of global warming on all our lives. Green business values globally have come to the fore. The UN December Road to Copenhagen talks, which over 190 countries will attend, brought hope of an agreement between the developed and the developing nations. Dr Chris Hope says the issues of deforestation and financial compensation to encourage developing countries to protect their forests must be addressed at the Copenhagen talks. The real problem is that for many people in developing countries, at the moment uh, it's better for them to have the, the forest cut down and the other uses of the land, such as agriculture, because that's the way that they get some income. Um, what we really need to do is find some way where it's better for the forest to stay alive and keep the carbon stored in them. And that will inevitably mean some way of transferring some money to the people who are making the decisions about whether these forests should be cut down or not. At the moment it's better for them to be cut down and used for agriculture because uh, we're taking no account essentially of the carbon dioxide that's being released when that happens. And what we should be doing is saying every tonne of carbon dioxide that gets released by cutting down a forest, well that causes damage of about $100 around the world and so we need to find some way of factoring that into the decisions that people make and making sure that if they preserve the forest then they can get a payment of about $100 for every tonne of carbon dioxide that stays locked up in them. That will transform the kinds of decisions that people will make because now it will become better and more uh, economic for them to keep the forests alive and continue to get the, uh, the money for storing the carbon than they will uh, receive from, say, cutting them down and, and grazing cattle on the land. As we enter 2010, the price of our economic recovery is likely to be felt most in the public sector, as regardless of which party wins the general election, cutbacks are on the cards to balance the books. NHS managers may well have to accept a pay freeze. But is there a best way of going about this? Dr Jenny Dean. I think that's a very particular risk, um, certainly within the public sector workforce as a whole, as well as perhaps as the senior level, um, because the public sector don't see themselves as earning as much as in the private sector. And one of the benefits is potentially having a better work-life balance. That's perhaps more relevant for the workforce as a whole, at senior level, people do work very hard. And that just goes back to the strength of the story as to why are we making this sacrifice. So if people really do believe that it is a necessary action that we need to undertake, it's temporary um, and it is going to benefit as a whole, then that is um, 
that will make it a bit easier. If people feel, again, that it's a top-down um, decision, that uh, they're a bit hard done by, then you will get those um, effects that people will not work as hard. And especially being public sector, this will be the time when public sector services are going to be needed more. So we do need to think really carefully about making this decision about the pay freeze and how it's done. In the developing world, experts were asking if high growth rates are likely to be sustained. China will be looking to its internal markets to fool its economic success story. Professor Peter Williamson. They were hit uh, temporarily by the decline in exports, but as this uh, shift occurs, which I think it will from uh, exports and investment toward domestic consumption, I think you will see a more steady growth. And the pattern that we see in China is not a lot different to the pattern we saw in, in say, Japan or Korea and their equivalent stages of development. And today, one of the things that historically has uh, constrained consumption by Chinese is a very high savings ratio. Chinese people are saving an average of around 28% of their income, which is very, very high. Uh, but uh, as we start to see the government providing more health care and more pensions, maybe they'll feel that they don't need to save quite as much, and so they'll start to spend more. So you'll see a, a steady shift uh, toward uh, consumption inside China driving the growth and I think therefore you're right that we'll be more reliable. And, and time scales for all of this because it is still controversial isn't it you know whether China can sustain its growth? Yes well I mean I think people have been pretty surprised how quickly China has turned around from the, the shock it received with its trade and exports declining. Uh, but I think a lot of the trends that I've mentioned, like uh, movement from rural to urban uh, population of large numbers of people, the changes in healthcare provision and things like that, uh, mean that we're looking at being able to have this fundamental driver of growth coming from within China over a long period of time. And I, I don't really see China having significant growth uh, slow down for at least another decade, possibly more. If 2009 has led to business failure, job losses and firm closures, the shakedown may mean firms are in a better position than ever to compete in these developing economies too. Innovation, creativity and management capabilities are ever more important as we enter 2010. Judge Business School has a wealth of expert advice to tap into.